Good morning. Uh, my name is Jomo Thompson. I am uh, one of the elders of the church, uh, church's elder board right now, and an occasional guest preacher. And uh, today I'm going to be doing our message on, Is Jesus Really God? From the Explore God series that we've been doing for the past month, uh, and that we'll be concluding uh, in a few weeks. Uh, Explore God, we've asked uh, and looked at, and we'll be looking at, seven questions, uh, starting with, does life have a purpose? Is there a God? Why does God allow pain and suffering? Is Christianity too narrow? Is Jesus really God? Is the Bible reliable? And can I know God personally? And we've been looking at it through a few different ways um, for people who maybe have been out of the church um, or never gone to church and have not thought about these questions before. We've wanted to give some thoughts. And if you're here online or in the room with us today, so glad that you gave us this time. Um, we're looking at it for people who have grown up in the church maybe all their life and never felt the freedom to ask this question and explore their true answer to these questions. And then also just to give us all a little bit of um, food for thought, some, some fodder to work with in terms of talking to our friends and, and neighbors and family who may be working with, through these questions. And so whatever the reason you're here, um, we, are, we are glad you're here. And this question I think is unique in the seven in that it was talked about at great length in the Bible, um, and it's more broad cousin, who is Jesus? The question was asked to him, who do you think you are to do these things that you're doing? It's a question he put to other people. Who do you say that I am? So there's actually a lot to not just, is Jesus really God, but was he the Messiah, Savior? What does that mean? God's son, a good teacher, a prophet, a heretic. So there's a lot we could talk about. We're going to stay kind of close to the question of, is Jesus really God? But this could be said to be the theme of the entire New Testament. Who was this man, Jesus? And does that mean anything to you? So with that, uh, let me pray, and then we will hop in. Um, God, help us, help me to speak this, help the people who are listening to hear it, help us all to understand uh, this question that is in some ways too large for any of us, um, but you say you're, you're with us, you say you want people to understand, you say you want people to believe, and so we turn to you uh, for help this morning. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, is Jesus really God? Uh, we'll begin with the simplest of answers, which is that his followers absolutely believed that Jesus was God. Um, Jesus' life is written about, uh, most of you know, many of you know, in four accounts, usually called the Gospels, written by four different people, and all of them talk about Jesus and point out different moments and stories from his life, but they all, in their own way, in their own time, get to this point of, yes, Jesus was God, actual God. The, probably the most direct of these comes from John's Gospel, um, and he wrote right out of the bat, right out of the gate, John 1, 1, uh, John writing said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, sorry, was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then dropping down a little bit in John 1, uh, John adds, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. John believed that Jesus was God. And he puts it in a very specific context, which is creation, which anyone familiar with the Jewish original text, Genesis 1-1, would know that that is the first way that God is identified. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I talked about that a few months ago, that when you see that phrase, Lord of heaven and earth, creator of heaven and earth, that's like the, 
the presidential fanfare, you know, like the... <laughs> that means the president's in the room. When you see creation of heaven and earth, that means God is in the room. And so John puts Jesus right there. Well, first referring to him as the Word. There's this second person, somehow, mysteriously, a second person who was equal to God, but distinct from God, and took part in creation. And then he says, he became a person. He put on flesh, which is unusual. Um, John doesn't say a whole lot more about it, but one of the other gospel writers, Luke, um, gets into the story that many, many people know well, the Christmas story about this idea of this woman who, who was visited by an angel and told that God has made you pregnant, though you are a virgin and you're going to have a child. And Luke treats it as something that he believed fully happened. Fact. Um, picking up in, in uh, Luke 1, Luke records a, a conversation, the conversation between Mary and the angel, who questioned the angel, like, how can this be that she would have a child? Uh, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. The Holy Spirit was a, a person known to Jewish people at the time as doing God's work. Uh, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Uh, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. How did she get pregnant? Because God did it. Gave her God's own son in her womb. How is it possible? Through God's power. And Luke, his, his account, his gospel is interesting in that he really makes the point that he believed these things happened. He went and investigated his actual, his, his, his mission statement, his thesis, um, in, all the way back at the beginning of Luke 1. He, he pointed out to his reader that he himself in Luke 1, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning and decided to write an orderly account so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And then if you read Luke's gospel, he, the way he talks about things, there's a, 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 that sort of indicia, that proof of he thought this really happened. There's this one particular phrase thinking about these interactions with Mary and Mary talking about having a child though she was a virgin. He, he uses this phrase twice um, in, in uh, Luke's gospel, chapter 2, uh, one time he writes that Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. This was when he's describing Jesus' childhood. And then again, his mother, mother treasured these things in her heart. And it's an odd phrase unless Luke went and talked to her. Right? Like, the math works out. She was probably a teenager when Jesus was born, and she was there at his crucifixion, about 50 by that point. So if Luke took the time to go and find out from her, she would have been, you know, what, 60 by that point? Um, and he would have sat with her and heard these stories being recounted of like, yes, she believed it. She had experienced it. Um, and, you know, it's, in its own little way, reminds me of like, you know, we, all of us, are, our mothers have this ability, didn't matter how old they get, to like pull out a story from your childhood that is like, one, really embarrassing and like, please don't tell that story. But also, how do you remember that detail? And that's the experience that it seems Luke had talking to Mary, that she's pulling out these little things that it happened. Um, Jesus' disciples throughout his ministry, his followers, uh, regarded him as God. They worshipped him openly. He accepted that worship. They, they called him God's son. He sent them out. They would go out and perform miracles in the name of Jesus. He taught them to pray in his name. And then after his death, well, they claimed he was risen from the dead, and they spoke adamantly that he was God's son, God himself, the only way to salvation. Uh, one of the most adamant of these adamant statements comes from the book of Hebrews. Uh, the author wrote, 
In these last days he, that is God, has spoken to us by his Son, meaning Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the universe, the sun in the radiance of the God's glory, the sun is the radiance of, the God, of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So to Jesus' disciples, it's case closed. Jesus is God, present tense, is God. Not dead, not a man, not past tense, is God now. And beyond that, to these followers of Jesus, great news, he shows us what God is like, and God is wonderful. All of these stories that they write down in, 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 in their Gospels are meant to communicate to us that, that Jesus didn't just come and restate the law and be like, hey, y'all remember that law that Moses did? No, no, he came and he showed people, yes, a restatement of the law, but also what God was like. And there's so many wonderful stories about what Jesus was like, but one uh, in particular that stands out, at least to me, is that he was once in the home of a religious leader, and there was a woman there that the Bible just describes as sinful, an immoral woman. And while Jesus was sitting there, she came, she fell down on his feet, she poured oil, she brought oil to do this and poured it on his feet. She was weeping, she was kissing his feet, wiping the tears. And the man, the, the host, this leader of the religious law, looked at Jesus and, his, and scoffed. He's like, well, if, if Jesus knew the kind of woman this was, he wouldn't even let her touch him. And Jesus answered by telling a story. He said to this, this host, he's like, there was a, a moneylender who had two debtors. One had a ton of debt and one just a little. And the moneylender decided to forgive both debts. So tell me, host, who loved the moneylender more? The host said, uh, the one who was forgiven more. He said, yes, exactly. And that's why he accepted this woman, because she was forgiven by him, and she loved him because of that forgiveness. And his, his answer is powerful, I think, in three ways. First, he answered the man's scoff. Yes, he knew exactly the kind of woman she was. She was a woman in great debt, in great sin. He then shows, second, that God's heart is to be reconciled to sinners who accept forgiveness. Not to come and, and, and just restate the law and, and talk down and condemn this woman and say, well, it's nice that you're here, woman, but you're, you're, you're evil, you're awful, you're sinful, you're, uh, you're immoral. Don't touch me. Instead, no, it's God's desire to be reconciled. Um, and third, he did. He spoke directly to this woman. Her sins were forgiven. He, he answered the, this, this, um, this religious leader's uh, challenge. The, the leader said uh, if he's a prophet, he would know the kind of woman he is. He not only was a prophet, but he took it higher. He forgave the woman and claimed a divine right in forgiving her sin. And this story, I love this story. If this is true, and right, this is from Luke. That's from Luke, by the way. Um, who carefully investigated everything before writing it down, if just that story is true, then Jesus is fantastic. And there's many more stories like that. And we should all be celebrating. The whole world should just be pumped about what a great person Jesus was. But they're not. And I want to now turn and talk about a little bit why I think some people, many people, maybe some in the room or online, uh, don't like the idea of this man being God's Son, being God's anointed, being from God. Um, then, as now, many people despise Jesus. Um, one reason, I do think, is this claim of being the ultimate moral authority, of coming and saying that he is Lord, not just a good teacher, not just with some good pointers on how to, you know, live life and get along with your parents, but actually claiming true moral authority. Um, and his 
his ability to forg- in his claiming the, the right to forgive sins and his performing miracles in God's name. Uh, and his opponents, his enemies, they didn't like him at all. And so the, a second answer, a second answer to the question, is Jesus really God, is that his enemies opposed this idea. They were very uh, resistant to this concept. Um, we, see, we saw it in the, in the last story when he forgave the sins of this woman. The people around the table were like, who does he think he is? Who does he think he is to forgive sin? Uh, there's another story. Um, Jesus was talking to a man who was, who was lame. He couldn't, he couldn't walk. And the man was hanging out near a pool that people believed had healing power. And the man couldn't get to the pool. And Jesus is talking to him and he's like, what do you want? You know, and he's like, I want to get to the pool. I want to be healed. I want to walk. To which Jesus said, well then, get up, take your mat, and walk. And the man did, healed in the moment. Uh, and he was walking along, you know, happy to be walking again. And he uh, was carrying his mat and some, some, some religious leaders saw him and they're like, stop, <clears throat> excuse me, stop. It's the Sabbath. You can't work on the Sabbath. This is the day of rest. You're carrying your mat. That's work. You can't work. Um, and he, the man explained, well, but the man who healed me, he said to stand up and carry my mat, so I'm just doing what he said. So then the leaders, they were upset with Jesus because now not only was the man carrying his mat on the Sabbath, Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, and it's a day of rest, and you shouldn't work, including healing people. And so they confronted Jesus about this, and Jesus answered them in John 5, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they, that is these uh, religious leaders, tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling, him, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They wanted to kill him. They understood him to be claiming divine right, divine identity, as God's son, doing God's work, acting as if he was God, taking God's place. And they were offended to the point of wanting to kill him. And stories like this occurred um, several times. And interesting to this story, not only were they upset with Jesus, but with this guy for living in a way that showed Jesus' power, Jesus' greatness, Jesus' divinity, Um, And this would continue throughout Jesus' ministry. His followers would be attacked kind of for little pithy things, like kind of ridiculous things like one time they broke off some grain on the Sabbath and they rubbed it in their hands and ate it and they're like, oh, that's that's harvesting on the Sabbath. You can't do that, which sounds ridiculous maybe to us, but they were very upset. Um, They didn't fast the right way or at the right time. They didn't wash their hands the right way to Jesus' followers. They didn't pay the temple tax correctly, like all these little things that that the um, people would go after Jesus' followers for following him. And then after Jesus died, these followers had the audacity to say that he was back, he was resurrected, and he was God's son. Again, the only way to be right with God, the narrow path that Shannon talked about last week, goes through Jesus. And let me say, let me pause to say that if a follower of Jesus is hated or opposed in Jesus' name, for doing the right thing, for being like Jesus, that's good. Jesus said that too. But there are also a lot of things throughout time, throughout history, that have happened in the last 2,000 years in Jesus' name that would more likely be called awful and 
I think to deal with this question, is Jesus really God, we need to pause, put a pin in that question, and ask a different question, which is, if Jesus is really God, why are his followers awful? Like, why, when we look at 2,000 years of, you know, inquisitions and crusades and witch hunts and, you know, slavery and manifest destiny, that's the big stuff, right? You know, just people doing what they wanted, you know, calling, you know, sort of stapling Jesus' name to the bottom of it. Um, and there's small stuff, too. There's things in your own life. I am quite certain that everyone here, everyone here has in their life been deeply hurt by someone claiming Jesus was cool with it, right? Jesus, <clears throat> I had this happen to me. Um, some, some people know. I I'd never actually met my father. He left when I was three or four, and I talked to him a couple times on the phone. This was a phone, uh, young people. This is how we used to, to signal that. <laughs> we didn't talk like this. We talked like this. Um, I talked to him on the phone a couple times, um, and one of the times he said to me directly that it was Jesus wanted him to not raise his kids, that he wasn't supposed to be there for his children because, quote, let no man call you father, pulled one line of Jesus's out of, out of, out of context, and that was hard. And that's, you know, that was painful for me, and I know it's true for all of you that you have in your life had people claim Jesus' name and treat you with contempt. And maybe more fairly, it's not even why are his followers awful, it's why are they like everyone else? Right? Like, it's not that Christians are worse, it's that you have a an oppressive government regime without Jesus and an oppressive government regime with Jesus, and they kind of feel the same. Or you have your own family toxicity or abuse or your own story of pain, and it's like, why are the people claiming Jesus just like everyone else? It seems like everyone just wants their own way. They just want to have it their way now, and if Jesus helps them get there, then they'll mention him, but they're not really changed by this person. Um, there was a philosopher quite critical of Christianity, uh, named Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, you may be familiar with him. He was German. He's famous for saying God is dead. He also had this theory called the will to power, which was his, his way of explaining all of humanity as simply wanting control over themselves and control over others. And I think a lot of people feel that way about Jesus, that, or not about Jesus himself, but about his followers. If Jesus was really God, why are his followers like everyone else? Why are they just enforcing their way on us? Maybe you feel that way about the Explore God series, that we're just here telling you, trying to get, oh, check off another follower. Yep, we did it. We got one more. We've grown our social club. Interestingly, Jesus was quite critical of the idea of dominating other people, of enforcing your way on other people. There was once a discussion an argument really between his followers about who was the greatest among them. And uh, Jesus interjected himself into the conversation uh, and he told them in Luke, in this world the kings and great men lorded over the people, yet they are called friends of the people. But among you it will be different. Those who are of the greatest, who are the greatest, you should take the lowest rank and the leader should be the servant. You will be different. One translation reads, not so with you. So what happened? <laughs> right, like if Jesus was himself this very humble, serving, non-forceful, non-dominant leader, what, what has gone wrong? Why, does, why have his followers strayed so far from what he said to be? 
Let's go back to Nietzsche for just a moment because it's, it's a weird thing to talk about Nietzsche in church and it's a weird thing to talk about Nietzsche in the current political climate because Nietzsche's writings were used by the Nazis for anti-Semitic and nationalistic purposes. And as I stand here this morning, October 22nd, 2023, there is again violence and strife and anger and fear against Jewish people. So I don't bring up Nietzsche lightly, but he, he points out a really important thing to see, which is that Nietzsche's scholars have in the years since the fall of Nazism pointed out that they think his, his, his writings, his teachings were misused, misinterpreted that after he died, his followers came and they kind of scratched some things out and they put some new things in and they used that just to meet their own agenda. And in Nietzsche's case, that makes sense because he was dead. He died in 1900 at age 54. He was in poor health. He's gone. And so when they took his writings, they took his speeches, they took his philosophies, they could easily twist it to their own means because he was gone and powerless to stop it. But for us, for anyone who would claim Jesus is God in the present tense, that's not an answer. Because we're not saying that Jesus was a good man and a good teacher who died 2,000 years ago. We're saying he is still here. So why doesn't he stop it? Why doesn't he take action? And some of this goes even to the question from two weeks ago, if God is good, why does he allow pain and suffering? You can rewrite that or revise that. If Jesus is really a good God, why doesn't he take action and stop his people from doing this in his name? And the answer, as I understand it, is good but also sad. Um, In the book of Hebrews, um, the author talks about the kind of person, the kind of leader, the kind of priest, the kind of prophet, the kind of God Jesus is. And in it, he has this one um, line that he, he, he speaks, talking about how God moves in his people. It's in Hebrews 8, chapter 10, the author wrote, I will put my law in their minds, his people's, and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And this quote was actually from the prophet Jeremiah, who had written 600 years before Jesus. And, he, and the author in Hebrews lifts it word for word and talks about how in Jeremiah's case it had been a prophecy, that a time was coming when God was going to move through people, not through kings or nations, priests, prophets, hierarchies and rules, but he was going to move in the hearts of his people, those who accepted him. And that was it. Jesus is not a God who came, or a leader, or a king who came to dominate, but to invite. And that means that people can claim his name and do awful things, or claim his name and just be like everyone else. And it hurts. And it hurts the way that question did two weeks ago. And I I, I wanted to say, I was chatting with with one of you about this this week, that these questions, they're not like, sort of like the villain of the week in like an 80s children's cartoon where you just like seven days and they come up and you beat them down and you never see them again. Like these questions are hard and long and deep and frustrating sometimes. And they are lifelong questions to deal with. Um, So we're not thinking, I'm not thinking that I'm gonna, you know, in the next couple minutes here, just wrap it all up for you. But that's his answer, that he came to move in the hearts and the minds of his people in small, sometimes very subtle ways. And I will say, kind of before we move on, that 
most of you, many of you have probably encountered these people in your life who are truly looking at God's Word, allowing it to change them. It is, it is on their heart. It is on their mind. But they're not necessarily going to make a big splash. They're not going to go out maybe with big, giant checks. And they might not post about it on social media. Um, they may not get written up in headlines. They might not make the big splash that some of the awful stuff does. But they are real. Yesterday, uh, a few of us went and served meals at a shelter here in San Mateo. And one of the things that's striking about it is that there's a shelter in San Mateo. And most people don't know that. And if you drove past it and didn't know it was there and you weren't looking for it, you wouldn't see it. But there's great work being done there. But people who actually do good work aren't big and bold and loud and obnoxious about it. I should also close out the story um, or close the loop here. I mentioned my father. So my own life, uh, I was quite terrified to be a father, partly because of my father. And I have through my daughter's almost 22 now, my oldest child, through you know, 22 years of trusting God and putting this man's Jesus, this God, Jesus' word into action in my life, seen real blessing, real change in myself through, um, through Jesus' power. But like someone who would just see me on the street wouldn't know that. I'd be like, oh, there's an ordinary dad and doing ordinary things. And it's like, yeah, but you don't know. They don't know. It was a miracle to bring me up to the level of ordinary dad. Um, and so, so his followers believed it. His enemies opposed it. I think, I think that's everyone, right? We've, we've <laughs> nope. No, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say about being God? Um, one person we should check in with. Did Jesus claim to be God? Did he say it? Did those words appear? Can you, can you open your Bible and flip to Jesus said, comma, quotation mark, I am God, period, quotation mark. Wait, quotation mark inside the period, outside the period. Anyways, does he say it? Um, it's hotly debated. People will point out that the, the, the specific exact phrase, I am God, is not spoken by Jesus in Scripture. However, I want to point out three things about the way Jesus communicated with people. Uh, the way Jesus spoke. The first is that Jesus spoke in the context and culture of his time. He was speaking to a Jewish audience, well-versed in things like Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth, well-versed in names of God like I am, well-versed in knowledge of what God could do, like forgive. And so when he speaks in reference to these things that he could do and these things that he would say about himself, it was in that context. Jesus spoke veiled truths in public. It's just a fact. It's really frustrating that he would go out in public and he would use these parables, these analogies, these riddles, and then in private with smaller groups he would speak more directly, more plainly. Um, and the third is that Jesus spoke more directly as his ministry progressed, that what he was saying a week into starting his ministry was very different from what he was saying a week from when he was killed. kind of frustrating, but I think it's the right way because truth takes time. Real truth that moves into a person's heart and mind takes time, and the way he communicated with people was meant to be found by those who were seeking. And so, my, my offering to you this morning is that I think the most important thing Jesus said about himself would have been said, uh, looking within the context of the Jewish scriptures, to his disciples, in private, after he died. And so I want to look at a verse that I need you, to, for those of you who have been in the church for a long time, you have to like clear your mind 
of what you think this verse says, because it is Matthew 28, the very end, 18, 19, and 20, often called the Great Commission, where Jesus tells his followers what to do, go, make disciples, teach, baptize, Um, and it does say that, but wash that out and just listen to what Jesus says about himself. His last statement, the last recorded statement of Jesus in Matthew 28, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. His heaven, his earth, his name, his teachings, his perpetual presence, just checking the boxes of everything that a person seeking God would know was God. Jesus claimed to be God. And it was plain enough for people who were listening. And he understood he was claiming something massive, overwhelming. And I think that, you know, we talked about the way Jesus' people are, and that makes it hard to believe. Why are Christians just like everyone else? But I think even harder than that is just the enormity of a human being claiming to be God. Like, there's, I think, we're closing on 8 billion people right now on earth, 117 billion all time, estimated, 300 million people at the time of Jesus, and one of them had the audacity to claim that he was this direct imprint of God walking around showing you exactly what God was like, telling you exactly what God wanted of you, offering to make your relationship with the right God, but only through him. It was immense. And if you find that too much to take, good news, you're in good company. (laughs) Because the people who were listening to him at the time who followed him thought he was too much to take. There's this story, um, Peter, 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 who was the founder of the church, uh, you know, uh, founder of the church there at the beginning, speaking on Pentecost, healing people with his shadow, um, Peter, that Peter, one of the first times he met Jesus, the story goes, uh, he had been out fishing all night, hadn't caught a thing. He was a professional fisherman, kind of embarrassing, and also just assigned to him like, okay, bad night, that happens. He's coming in, and Jesus is on the shore, and he's like, hey, did you catch anything? And he's like, no. He's like, well, put your nets on the other side. And so Peter did, huge catch. Maybe that doesn't mean a thing to you and me, but to Peter, it meant a lot. And so it says in Luke 5, When Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Peter said, Go away, Jesus. You're too much. And again, this particular miracle, this fish catch, maybe doesn't feel that big to us. But Peter knew. Jesus had just cracked the veil a little bit on who he was. And Peter was overwhelmed. But Peter didn't leave. Jesus told Peter, no, get up, come with me, be my disciple. You're going to be a fisher of men. And Peter did. And Peter followed Jesus through all of these huge, absurd, big, can't-take-these moments in Jesus' ministry. One time, Jesus gave a teaching where he said that you had to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And someone in the crowd said, 
that's a really hard teaching. Who can accept that? <laughs> like, too much. And people, like, walked away. And Jesus, not needing a crowd, turned to disciples and was like, are you leaving too? And Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter knew that Jesus was too much, too big, too immense, the idea to put his life in the hands of the, the notion that this man in front of him was God, but he did it nonetheless, though it was too big, though it was too much. So if Jesus overwhelms you, if that idea of God in man's form telling you exactly what God wants is too much, good. <laughs> it would be a very bad thing to minimize Jesus. People who minimize Jesus, tried to crunch Jesus down into something more bite-sized, did not do well at all. Um, on the night Jesus was betrayed, uh, the night before his trial and execution, Jesus told his disciples one of them would betray him. And the disciples were, were disturbed, they were upset, they protested this from Matthew, being deeply grieved. They each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. And then Judas, who was betraying him, said, surely it is not I, Rabbi, which means teacher. And Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. And that's the sole distinction that we get in this passage. When they was told, when they told them, one of you is going to walk away from me, one of you is going to turn your back, one of you is going to leave him behind, they said, no, Lord, not me. And they were right. It wasn't them. And one said, good teacher, it's not me, is it? And Jesus said, you said it. So feeling that Jesus is too much and then persevering with Jesus is a very good thing. It's the right response. Jesus' claims are not small. Jesus' claims are not something that we can do in our own power. Jesus is not someone that we can reach. The Lord Jesus Christ is not someone that you can get to by your own power, which is why in his power he made a way for us. A very familiar verse, John 3.16, Jesus speaking said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, that Son, shall not perish, but have eternal life. We can't get to him. And yes, his standards are high. After one teaching, people said, you know, how, who can reach what you're saying? He said, it's impossible. Jesus said his teachings were impossible for man, but with God, possible. So, that's why he died. That's why there was a sacrifice. That's the payment for sin. That's why raising from the dead afterwards to prove that he had defeated sin once for all. Yes, Jesus' heights are too high because he's God. But because he's God, those heights can be reached by those who trust him, by those who call on his name, by those who accept um, his offer of forgiveness. And with that, I'll pray. Dear God, Jesus, help us all. Help us all to wrestle with the enormity of who you claim to be, the enormity of who you are. Help us not minimize you. Help us wrestle with the questions, the frustrations of why pain and suffering has happened in your name. But help us not give up on you. Help us to be like Peter, who though he was overwhelmed, though he understood that the man in front of him was too much for him, got up and followed him anyways. 
We want to be like that. We need to be like that. And we can only do it with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.